Hello, citizens of Earth. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim, and with me is your favorite podcast co-host, Steve. I mean, too. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't realize. I learned we keep audio. I learned just recently from Teal's parents, no less, that his real name is Steve. My real name is Steve. Uh, so for some reason, when I hear the word Steve or the name Steve, uh, there's a couple of things. You know, there's Steve Martin, there's Steve McQueen, but for some reason, I think of Steve the Gummy Bear from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Um, pro- okay. Probably the best character in that movie is Steve the Gummy Bear. But for some reason, that pops into my head every time I hear the name Steve. And perhaps that was what was going through your mom's head when she called it. <laughs> it could have been. Have you seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Uh, you know, it was probably on in the background. It was for, you know, we, we all have kids of a certain age and they would watch that on the DVD a bunch of times. Yep. And- okay. That's been my experience <sighs> with that movie, too. Yeah. Didn't, didn't go to the theater to see it by myself. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I did not. And uh, thankfully, my kids are way out of that stage. So I rarely see any of these geared for kids movies anymore. I don't see them. I mean, rarely that one comes along that maybe they're interested in. But for the most part, like my youngest is on to PG-13 action movies uh, instead of animation. Okay, I'm going to explain something to the audience because it's been a while. Yeah. Um, We haven't been on for a few weeks, but now I'm going to tell you why. Uh, Because Teal, he uh, took a little trip uh, to New Mexico Mm -hmm. to visit his family, his parents. Yes, I did. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, always good to talk to them about movies because they can never remember the name of the movie or who's in it or really what it's about. But they want me to come up with the title based on their description. That sounds exactly what my wife does to me all the time. She goes, you know that movie with that actor in that thing? Yeah. I'm not kidding. That's exactly. And I have to try to piece together maybe by the inflection of her voice who she's talking about. Um, and, you know, they were out, they were outside there and there was a person and they, they were running and that, that woman was laughing. You know, you know that scene, right? So this actually, this actually happened though with, uh, I was talking to my mother about movies and she said, oh, there was this movie with Marcello Mastriani and Sophia Loren and they're up on the rooftop ducking in and out of the laundry and it's so romantic. And I was like, that's a special day. I know that movie. I've seen that. She couldn't remember what it was called, what it was about, anything, but she had seen it in the theater. Uh, when it when it came out in the U.S., but yeah, she had uh, no other memory besides that scene on the rooftop, which I have to say is very uh, iconic and stunning kind of visual. So it makes sense why it's stuck in her head. So while you were there, I I took a little visit to New Mexico <laughs> yes. and saw you and your parents for just a couple of days. <laughs> yes, we did not have the chance to watch any movies while while there. It was definitely in our plans, but it just wasn't going to work out. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they don't have the best uh, assortment of movie theaters where your parents live. but They really don't, and my parents don't have really a setup for watching stuff outside of their bedroom. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that maybe like we could watch something on Criterion or something. But Yeah, no, there's no not even a TV in my part of the house. <laughs> um. 
so you know so we really haven't seen anything in the theater uh we both missed the boat on the guardians of the galaxy movie yes and now that does that movie still exist or did they uh <laughs> it's i guess it's still out there but you know since i have to travel a great distance to see any movie right if i don't see it in the opening weekend like that i'm probably not seeing it till it hits the streaming and you know it'll probably be what next month it'll probably be on disney plus the other thing i've noticed in my neck of the woods is that if you don't see something in that first week not necessarily opening weekend but if you don't see it in the first week it's not on the good screens anymore right well that was always a problem yeah and so i want to see it on the best screen i can find in town and sometimes uh after a week it's really just not not even in dolby it's just uh in these little like 25 seat theaters i actually would have seen Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I haven't been so keen on a lot of these Marvel yeah. movies lately, but I wanted to kind of see that because I saw the first two and, you know, uh, I really liked the first one. The Me second too. one wasn't as good, but, you know, you get growing with those particular characters. So I was all in to see the third. I think they're towards the top of Marvel. Well, you know what the only problem was? I feel like after the success of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. That was the problem. Then Marvel's like, everyone loves the fun camaraderie jokery. Let's do that with all of the movies. But it worked for it worked for the Guardians because that was their thing. Right, but it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, But yeah, I like that. That first movie, I think, is probably my favorite Marvel movie. I would agree, and um, and I saw that a few times in the theater, and so. Now, this is the sad thing, and it's a warning out there to the Marvel uh, filmmakers uh, and the producers. Look, you guys have been producing subpar product for a while now, and somehow (laughs) you're still getting away with audiences showing up. But my kids, one who is going to be 15 this year, and the other is 11, they are both way out they didn't want to see Guardians of the Galaxy. I couldn't get either one to go wow. to see it because they've been so disappointed by the last few. They just don't want to go and drive all that way and be disappointed. My oldest daughter has seen the last few in the theater. Uh, right. But and she goes with friends. She stuff, goes right? with It's just a social thing. She has a friend who's really into Marvel that she goes to the movies with uh, every every. Yeah, every movie the two of them go, and uh, so it's a friend thing, and it's a social thing, and she sees them, and she's like, uh, I don't know, she hates Marvel, <laughs> so her expectations- but she goes to the social thing, and I yeah, get it. Yeah, her expectations are so low that she actually ends up sort of enjoying the movies a little bit, but then forgets about them instantly, right? So like, uh, two weeks ago, I watched uh, Moonlight and Paradise with her. And uh, 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 Parasite. Moonlight and Paradise. What's that? <laughs> Moonlight. I watched the movie Moonlight and the movie Parasite with her. Oh, uh, and Parasite, yeah. Yeah, and she uh, she loved those, and she can't stop talking about Parasite. Uh, but, you know, the Marvel movie, in one ear, out the other. Totally forgotten. It was fine for the two hours she's sitting there, and then she doesn't care after that. Well, yeah, there's nothing to really chew on and, and decipher um, no, <laughs> with a Marvel movie. No, there's there's nothing to talk about afterwards, other than that was cool where that guy did that thing, uh, and it was all CGI. Yeah, and I suppose your daughter doesn't have a lot of exposure to international films. 
Not a lot. I mean, I try to, yeah, she doesn't. So she really liked Parasite because it fits in with all these things she's learning in social studies, like class division. And, uh, you know, she read the Communist Manifesto recently, and that's kind of interesting to talk about in terms of Parasite. But uh, Marvel movies, there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, I guess international films, if they make it here in the United States, they're kind of cherry-picked, yeah. and the ones that tend to make it over here aren't necessarily uh, popcorn flicks. There's ones that have more of an artistic bend and an interest yeah. in kind of social issues and things. So so I guess when you get exposed to the international films that do make it over here, they're usually pretty interesting. They're usually pretty interesting, and they are they are different. They, you know, I don't know. When I was a kid, everyone would say, oh, well, foreign films are so much better, Right. That was kind of a thing. Hollywood just makes junk. And if, uh, this is my parents' friends would say things like this, right? Uh, when I would tell them as a kid that I was into movies and they'd be like, well, you you shouldn't watch that Hollywood junk. You should watch, you know, you should only watch uh, Fellini and, or whatever, right? And so I kind of had this idea as a kid that these films were better. And uh, so I, I started watching them in high school. And uh, I don't know that they were all better, uh, but <laughs> they were different, though. but but a lot of them are different, and they employ different uh, narrative and uh, st- narrative structure techniques uh, that I think just uh, they're different than classical Hollywood narrative, and can engage the audience in a different way than just uh, you know so many people like my students say i know where a movie's going in the first five minutes and that's true if you're using classical hollywood narrative it's all set up in the first five or ten minutes yeah but these a lot of these foreign films don't do that and we're talking about one of them today yeah you know it's funny you bring up a good point when i always think of my favorite uh <laughs> my favorite uh punching bag the bfi yes uh, Top 264 list from 2022. I am very close to completing the mission. And good or bad or great, the one thing that I would say is common through the majority of these movies and documentaries, there's a lot of documentaries on there, is just what you said. Right. That the narrative structure of these movies are very different. I don't know if that makes them great. In some cases, I don't think so at all. <laughs> it, it definitely makes them individuals, right? Like you can't, yeah. you can't necessarily fit them into a genre because they don't, they don't check all the boxes uh, yeah. to be a thriller, say, or something, you know? And so they, well, I don't know. Let's talk about Leclerc. Well, okay, so you're, you're jumping ahead. So here, here's the thing what we're doing. We, we got into a discussion when we were together in New Mexico, and we were trying to think about what we would talk about for this next episode, especially since there isn't any new movies that we've seen. <laughs> and we thought about the BFI list a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, my complaints were that I had seen a couple of films that it's not that I didn't think they were good or not, but I just thought that there were some better films available that could have yeah. been substitute out. Um, and so one of them, and, we, and you mentioned Leclis, uh So if anybody who knows what a, who, what a Cliss is, hang on, we're going to get to it. And <laughs> for those who don't, hang on, we're going to get to it. But we're going to get to a different movie first. So out of the entire list of the BFI, 
the two filmmakers were a combo. They were like the Coen brothers of their day. Right. Are these two filmmakers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Yes. And they were known as the Archers. Yes. And they together were like this writing and directing team. One of them was more focused on the writing. The other one was more focused on the directing. But, you know, their efforts were they shared in credit. every yeah. aspect. Yeah, because they were just really every aspect. These two were super imaginative. And yeah. they really basically set up a structure to do their own thing. And whatever budgets, everything that they wanted was to craft stories that they wanted to tell. And I think it only just took one or two of them not to be successful for them to all break down because it's amazing that they didn't just continue their entire career this way. Right. Yeah. It did all break down, didn't it? It, it did eventually. And I think that they went their own ways. They kind of had a, like a 10 or 15 year run, right? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, if you look at some of these films, it's an amazing run because out of all the filmmakers on the BFI list, I believe that Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger hold the record for the most films on the BFI list, at least in the 2022 list. Interesting. Okay. And some of them, I absolutely agree with that. They're just some of the best films of all time. Right. And all of the ones I watched, because I've seen every Michael Power and Emmerich Pressburger movie on the list now. Right. Um, some were new for me and they were great discoveries. And at least one of them is now in my uh, top 100. But there's a couple others that, while I enjoyed every one, they're just not as much up to snuff. And so, you know, let's they're being a little greedy here. I don't think that Powell and Pressburger need to be so prevalent in the list. <laughs> and there's one film that, while it's good, I just can't see why it made enough top 10 lists to make the list. And it's a film called I Know Where I'm Going. Uh, it's a World War II era film. It's a fine movie. It is fine. There's a lot of fine movies that maybe people have, if you're depending on where you're from, like regionally, maybe it, you know, it has a place in your uh, heart, but it could be that, or it could be, you know, this definitely happens to us. Uh, I think it happens to every film goer is that you can have an experience of watching a film early in your life and think that's amazing and not really move on from that decision. Right. And like, so it's possible that some, you know, a number of people saw this film and were blown away by it. Maybe it was their first Powell and Pressburger movie. And so it, you know, holds a special place for them. That's how it ends up on their list. I, I, you know, I know this happens to me that there's movies that I like that I'm holding on to from my childhood. One of which you disabused me of recently. Oh, which one's that? Uh, the Man Who Would Be King. Oh, you know, what's funny. It made a couple of top 10 lists. Yeah. Um, but I feel like watching it now, it's very uh, colonialist. Yes. And it's definitely a white man's uh, it journey. It is a white and, man's burden kind of movie. Yeah. and Yeah. And it's definitely got some... <laughs> it's definitely yeah so it's problematic but you know it's but that's the kind of film that from my childhood i thought of as a great film yeah and i get that because as a, you know there's a lot of movies as, as i saw as a kid that i didn't see any problem with whatsoever well and absolutely now. right <laughs> now you look at it and you go you know what maybe not one of the greatest films ever right <laughs> it's gone yeah it's a little bit uh it's a little bit <laughs> <laughs> just it's it's just wrong in the, in this this day and age yeah um and you know but i think i think actually that's kind of the case with rudyard kipling in general yeah 
So for people like, well, what is this? I know where I'm going. I mean, in a very nutshell, there is a woman, uh, Wendy Hiller. She's kind of a free spirit, but and it has a very fun opening credits. Um, I, it's hard to describe, but they do a very creative thing with the credits and um, kind of introducing you to this character who is like kind of a free spirit from just a little girl on who knows where they're going and. Uh, but then it's really bizarre and it's kind of the way they treated women in a lot of these movies for many years yeah. where you mean you, you wait wait the way movies treat women or the way the archers treated women no just the way movies in general okay the way movies in general yeah, yeah i mean i don't they don't think they were being uh, archers were doing it any different than other but okay yeah her character suddenly without any real backstory like meet some mysterious wealthy stranger and is going to marry him. And then just says to her dad, who's some kind of wealthy banker, Oh, I'm off to this Island. I'm going to marry this guy. And he's kind of like, okay. And then she goes and the whole, you know, premise is that because of bad weather, etc., she can't get to this Island to see this person who we never see this. Uh, right. Even though she knows where she's going, she can't get there. She can't get there, so of course she's going to meet all of the strangers um, on the uh, the on the shore side, and then she will, you know, slowly fall for this other guy, uh, played by uh, a guy who had been in other Powell and Pressburger movies, other Roger uh, Livesey, and uh, of course she's going to fall in love with this guy, but right. You know, there's just nothing that special, but maybe if you're way into romance, somehow this catches your fancy. I, I don't know. I mean, I I enjoy a romance movie from time to time, but I have to really fall for the romance in order for it to work. And I understand that that's a totally uh, personal thing, right? Like I can't, but sometimes it just doesn't work at all. There's no chemistry. And uh, so you don't really buy it. But if there is chemistry, I'll buy it. But uh, yeah, this... Uh, I, I, I'm just not that into this movie. I, I saw it. I went to a Powell Pressburger <laughs> festival years ago and saw them all then. my One of my favorites is one that's not on the list called Small Back Room. I know. It's on Criterion, and I am yeah. going to watch it. But yeah, it's not uh, on the list. And it, it's a movie I like, but I wouldn't put it on my top 100. Whereas I w- uh, Black Narcissus, definitely on my top 100. Yeah, that and the red shoes are definitely in my top. And I I personally, so I guess it's like a personal thing. One of the films that I watched as part of this, and I just absolutely fell for, I just was floored by it, was A Canterbury Tale. Yes. And yes, that's one you can fall for. I love that movie. It all worked for me there. <laughs> and yet the other one, that a couple of the other ones I thought were really great and they wouldn't make my personal 100, but I thought they were Wait, great. If, if I knew we were doing an episode on the archers, I would have prepared. That's because you started talking about them. We don't know where these <laughs> threads are going to go to. And we're going to get off it really quickly because see, the whole idea is that the archers are so well representative. I mean, the They're life of Colonel, of, of Colonel Blimp was another amazing one. Yeah. Um, and then the one about the, uh, it, it's sometimes called Stairway to Heaven, but yes, it's also uh, called something else. It also has another title. Yeah, with David Niven. Yeah, that one's really good too. A Matter of Life and Death. Matter of Life and Death. And I was re- uh, 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 that was remade twice. So it's interesting um, and really good, but I mean, those aren't going to be in my top 100. Now, this isn't, they're not all in the 100. They're in the top 264. Right. But with all that representation, the reason why I'm picking on this movie is that, look, 
there are some great films, amazing films, that didn't make this list at all. And I'm just saying, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take the spot of I know where I'm going, and I am going to personally put in one of the films that I feel personally is one of the 100 best films of all time. And it's a director who was nominated for Best Director more times than any other film director. And he doesn't have any representation in this list, but he is a really great filmmaker. And I feel like the pinnacle of his success, and it's a movie that was very personal to him because he spent time um, documenting fighter pilots in bombers. He, he, He was actually in a bamer doing a lot of like film research stuff. Uh, William Wyler, and he lost a lot of his hearing from being in one of those bombers. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. And so he comes back, and his experience working with these people and just understanding what the soldiers went through, but their transition back to America shaped this film, The Best Years of Our Lives, which I'll watch this one every few years, and it always just, um, it kind of brings me to tears at moments. And I just love it. And Yeah, you love this movie. I do. It, I had never seen it. But you've it. never seen it. That's, never that seen amazed it. me that you could not. You could have got out of... Like, I remember seeing it in film school, no less. Really? I didn't yeah. know they showed three-hour movies in film school. They did, but it <laughs> might have been when I went to USC for a year. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I feel like I remember seeing it at NYU. Yeah, I'd never seen it. I didn't really know what to expect. All I knew... I, I, I went in almost blind. And I and you purposely because I like you didn't want to know anything, and so I also didn't want to tell you anything. Yeah, yeah. So now you can tell me all these things. <laughs> I'll tell you the thing <laughs> that I I had to stop the movie and Google this actor, the guy without the hands. Yeah, he won Best Supporting Actor for the movie. Well, I know now. Yeah, but I, Harold I, he, Russell. He's one of two non-actors to win an Oscar, right? Yeah, he's from Massachusetts. Oh, he's from Massachusetts. Oh, that's the accent. He was. Yeah, yeah. He was from Massachusetts. He's passed away, but yeah, he's amazing. He is incredible in this movie. It is just an amazing performance. If there's parts that bring me to tears, it's him yeah. for the most part. And uh, he just, I think he has the, I think his character has the most interesting story too. Well, I have a question for you because I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. In the, in the movie, is his story that, did he, did he, Loses arms in D-Day, or does he lose it before he gets to D-Day? I got the impression that he lost. Oh man, it, it, he lost them when his ship was attacked. So that was like he 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 lost his his arms or his hands in battle in the movie because his real life story is he was training for D-Day and there was a munitions accident oh. and he blew his hands off. Okay, okay, interesting. So he did not get to go. To, he didn't actually face war. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think, and I mean, he says uh, several times that he never saw any war because he was in the engine room of a ship the whole time. I couldn't remember, like, because again, it's like you said, you're the one that's just seen it, so that's why I'm asking. Yeah, and I, I thought it was, you know, that's an interesting part of his character too, is that he's gone away to this other world, but basically has been in an engine room the entire time, so didn't see anything. Didn't see any combat. Didn't see any of Europe. Uh, yeah, so it's it, he's a very interesting character, and he really is not quite sure how to reintegrate himself. And uh, really jolly guy, and this woman loves him, and he is just not wanting to put 
what he sees of himself being a burden. Uh, he doesn't want to put that on her. Yeah, she was the high school sweetheart. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, uh, exactly. this actress Kathy O'Donnell that was his uh, fiance. But he comes back and he doesn't have these hands, and he's he's really wrestling with, especially at the time, right, mid forties, yeah. his manhood and what people thought of that. And and he's. It's interesting. The first part of the movie, before he gets home, he's totally fine with it, right? He's like, "Yeah, I'm all right. I know, right?" He's, but when he sees her, he suddenly gets worried and self conscious about his aunts. I, I know what the best part was is that uh, there's a scene where all the little kids in the neighborhood they're like kind of yes. all like curious about it, and they're sneaking up to where he's staying, and he he takes his hands and he like throws them through the window, and he's like. There, look at the freak. Yeah, and the kids are all like shocked and scared, and yeah, and they're they're sorry, they feel bad about yeah. And so, but he does kind of have. Well, that's the other thing about this movie is that everyone has PTSD. That's so. That's what I really love about the movie is that it's dealing with a subject that was not talked about, and you see it in these different characters, and the one that it's not necessarily as um, overt. But you really see it because he's all, because he's the, the the upstanding businessman is right. Frederick March's character, and and he's really he's lost, he's lost, and he just drinks himself stupid in every scene. Yeah, it's, it, well, first of all, he won Best Actor, and it's a really good performance because yeah. it's very like. And Myrna Loy, who plays his wife, I always love Myrna Loy. Oh, she's she's fantastic. basically becoming what the like she's like kind of in this codependent relationship. She's trying to like take care of him and kind of cover for him exactly and and he's coming and saying the world isn't the way i i, I have a different impression of the world now uh and he works at a bank he wants to give loans to gis the bank is saying well we can't gamble on them uh so he he's picking these little battles along the way but he's also just drunk all the time yeah, um, so his character is sad, and then Dana Andrews is another interesting character. In real yeah. life, he was a bad alcoholic, and he actually, um, in the early 70s, he, he was able to get sober and then talk about his experiences and how oh. it really cost him his career and did so much damage in his life. But his character is interesting because, you know, he had what he thought was a great job yeah. when he left, which was like a soda jerk. And then he goes and he does some really important things. Yes. He's highly trained. He's he's a hero. Yeah. He's, he's a decorated war hero for saving people. And then he comes back and the world has changed and it doesn't have a place for him in the way his life was. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to make sense and become something now. He doesn't know what to do. Well, and he married this woman that he knew for a few <laughs> oh, weeks. I know. He, I, yeah. I think he said he knew her 20 days. And then they got married and he, uh, and he left, it went overseas and comes back and... Uh, Virginia Mayo, <laughs> great That's perform. Right. Yeah, uh, I've always been a fan of hers. She, she, she has a great performance as just this uh, woman who's not buying what he's selling. I guess. Well, remember she he comes home and she, she wants to go out, but she wants him to wear the uniform. Right? Yes. Yeah, and then he puts the uniform on. And she says, "Oh, now you look like you again. You look like <laughs> yourself again." And he's he doesn't want the yeah. So it's. Speaking of narrative structure, this is interesting in, in large part because it's a three-hour movie, right? So I was expecting, yeah. I was expecting an epic, and it is in a way, but it's also very small. And 
uh, I timed this, I think, the first 80 minutes of the movie uh, takes place in one 24-hour period. Uh, you know, that's interesting when you put it that way, right? Setting everything up in a small period of time. Yeah, it, it all happens this one overnight into the next day. Like they get home, I'm saying they get home around noon. Uh, then they get, you know, it goes into the next day. And it's only then that we start cutting ahead in time. Uh, by skipping a few weeks here and there and things like that. Uh, but that first 80 minutes is 24 hours, and each scene has a remarkable amount of room to breathe. Uh, that's really why this movie is so long, I think, is because there are these very long scenes where the actors are given a lot of space. Uh, these scenes are often done in one static take, which is this Greg Toland photography, which is just absolutely yes. precise and perfect. And, you know, it just watching this movie made me so angry about Steadicam directors. <laughs> because this shows that if you have the right shot, you can hold it for two or three minutes and let the actors talk. And then maybe you do a over the shoulder reverse shot or something. But there are some really long takes in this and he he does the blocking really well too in terms of mirrors or the depth of where people are positioned the final wedding scene is incredibly well lit so that you have uh teresa wright and dana andrews looking at each other across the room and sort of the lights on them the crowd moves away and it's just the two of them looking at each other and it's all done in this one shot that's just uh incredibly well and precisely executed and uh that's one of the things that that just blew me away about the movie was the cinematography because there's nothing showy about the cinematography it's not a bunch of flashy it's not like lawrence of arabia right where you look at it and you go amazing shot this is like three people hanging out in a bedroom for five minutes well, it just shows you that Greg Tolan was the master cinematographer, the guy the guy who shot Citizen yeah. Kane, but he could be called upon to use his skills in many different ways. You yeah. know? Tell, I can't remember. Is it Dana Andrews or is it Frederick March at the end inside the um, the graveyard of the it's, Air Force? It's Dana Andrews. And it's nicely set up because we see the airplane graveyard at the beginning, and then he wanders around in it at the end. And that um, amazing scene where he crawls up into the dead airplane and starts and is just kind of hanging out in the bomber cockpit or whatever it's called and he starts basically having flashbacks and there's this amazing shot where you see him sort of through the little glass bubble or whatever it's called and the camera rushes in is one of the few camera movements in the movie the camera rushes in towards him as though the plane is flying yeah that's so great. And and so he goes up in there and he starts having these flashbacks. And it's, there's a change for his character there. There's a rather big change for his character there. He's trying to run away and because of that decides to stay. Uh, I, in part, I think it's not explicit, but I think that there's the realization. And his parents say this to him, too. What, what makes you think it'll be different anywhere else? And it's sort of, you know, he's carrying around his P PTSD. It's not going to be different anywhere else. Uh, so he ends up staying, and uh, yeah, I really like this Teresa Wright character. It just some some great casting, great actors, and this uh, uh, Harold Russell is just amazing. Um, that said, I'm not putting this film on my top 100. 
well, you know, it's only the first time you've watched it. I watched it many times. Um, but now, look, it is a product of being in 1945. Yes. And, you know, there, it, some knocks, it's, again, it's it's focuses, it's a male story, and it's a white male story, and there's like nary a, a black character in the movie, um, which wouldn't be any different from the majority of right. films coming out. There, there are but, black characters in the movie, and they're all service people. Yes, and that's another <laughs> it's another thing that reminds you when you watch these films yeah. from Hollywood in the 40s. Um, but there is one little aspect, and it was one of the original reasons several months ago I asked you to watch this movie. Yeah. And it's something that only caught my attention, really, the last time I watched the film. And there's this exchange that Dana Andrews has with somebody who was part of that whole America First crowd. Yes. And... It's very interesting to see this topic get addressed in the movie since there was a big component of America that didn't want us involved in World War II in the first place. Right, and you don't see those America firsters in World War II movies because our most of our World War II movies were propaganda in some sense, right? We're fighting the good fight, that, and so that there wasn't, I don't know, were there America first movies, right? <laughs> Um, right. but because this guy, he sits down at the at the counter, the soda counter, and he starts talking to um, to Harold Russell, the guy without hands. He starts talking to him about, ah, hey, you're all a bunch of suckers, and we fought on the wrong side of the war, and yeah, we, <laughs> we should have just let the Japs and the Germans kill everything and take over, and we would have been fine. They only wanted the Chinese and the limeys anyway or whatever you know he's going on this rant and uh harold russell sort of grabs him and pulls this uh he has a little lapel pin of an american flag he rips it off him and and then dana andrews comes in and punches him uh and gets fired for it but yeah he's on this america first rant and he's just saying you know well this i'm just telling you the facts i mean it's it's it, the way this guy comes across is so similar to like a QAnon person, right? Right, or or some sort of conspiracy. Like I've had this before, where I ask somebody a question and they say, "Well, do your own research." And this guy, <laughs> and this guy's saying the same thing. He's like, "Well, you just you just have to look up the facts. You'll see that I'm telling the truth. I'm just yeah. You just do your own research." And uh, so that yeah, that scene is fascinating. Yeah, those are the things to me that elevate this film because. It's tackling subject matter that I don't think a lot of movies were tackling. And it's a small part of the movie, but it's still, this is a film that's really trying to tackle a lot of things. And you remember, this movie is like 1945, now 46 or whatever. Yeah. And so it's right as all these GIs are coming home. And it's it's really just, you know, focusing in on the experience that these men had had and trying to cope with suddenly this weird normalcy in America. like Yeah, where and, and where suddenly they don't, they aren't the people they were before, right? Like the uh, Frederick March character was a sergeant, and so he was commanding people, and then he comes back and he's an employee. So that, that sort of dissonance between who you are there and who you are at home. Yeah, and like Dana Andrews saw some horrors, clearly. Yes. And... And and yet none of the people in their lives, like the women, I guess, in their lives, they, they, the only people that can understand what they're going through is themselves. Yes. So that's when they get together at the bar. They they have this camaraderie because they all know what they went through. 
Yeah, and you know the Dana Andrews character does talk in his sleep, uh, yes. so he has uh, the, these nightmares, and so there's a, a little bit of women trying to understand. You know, th- there is that. I, I mean, again, this is so genderfied movie, but it, you know the uh, the Harold Russell character. Uh, I forget the actress who plays his girlfriend. Oh, Kathy O'Donnell. Kathy O'Donnell. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she died really young. Oh, she did. Oh, That's probably why I don't recognize her. She was in uh, Ben-Hur and stuff. Yeah, she had cancer. I, I looked her up and I was like, how come she didn't keep working? <laughs> well, she died at age 46 of cancer. So okay, well, that'll explain it. But he he also doesn't want to let her into his trauma, right? And uh, the same thing with Dana Andrews. They don't want to let these people in. Well, actually, Frederick Marsh, too. He doesn't want to let his wife in, right? Well, I think that was also like very much of its day, right? It was about being a man, and you can't yeah. be burdening uh, women with these these horrors. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, the women uh, in the movie are strong and brave and, and, and can handle the horrors. Well, and they also could handle life without them. Because they were doing that for several years. Like, yes. that's another thing. The women have become more independent. Dana Andrews' wife was definitely handling things without him, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and that's another, by the way, that is not some kind of weird thing of like, oh, I'm marrying a soul. A lot of men yes. and women got married because if they passed away, the woman would get their yes. back pay or whatever it is. And my own grandmother. <laughs> Uh-huh. It had a very similar thing where she got married to a neighborhood boy. Um, this was my dad's parents yeah. uh, who was getting ready to go off to World War II. And I, I think my grandmother wanted to be a nun, uh, quite honestly. And I don't think she ever thought he was coming back. But, uh, you know. <laughs> but he came back. That, that was not a great marriage. But, <laughs> you know. Now, why do you think you're going to put this on your top 100? I probably would, yeah. Now, did anyone vote for it? That I haven't seen. I, I Probably somebody has. Okay. Because I think I sort of was aware of this movie, but uh, largely through you. I mean, I, I knew that it existed. I'd seen the poster and stuff. I know who these actors are for the most part. And I don't feel like the movie is regarded the way even, say, Ben-Hur is. I don't hear this movie talked about a lot. Oh, I have. I mean, again, I watch things like Turner Classic Movies and stuff, but like Ben-Hur... Ben-Hur, look, I don't care what anybody says, right? I love Ben-Hur. And yeah, it's cheesy, but I feel like over the years, it got degraded into some kind of like big cheesy sword and sandal thing, probably because of all the Jesus stuff. But like, that's also, of course, William Wyler. um, And he- Which is why I brought it up. For that as well. And it's got got some amazing stuff in it. Of course, the uh, actual most famous part, the chariot race, he didn't direct. It was segment unit directed. (laughs) You know, hey, he'll still got the credit in the Oscar. But uh, anyways, we spent a good time on that. Now we have, so we we decided that there would be two movies because the other one, uh, as you know, as I've been making my way through this list, uh, there was a couple of Antonioni's that I hadn't seen. Uh, The first one I watched didn't make, this is always weird to me. There's a film on the director's 100. Yeah, that's not on the... Lanate. It didn't make it anywhere in the 264, but yet in their top 100 for the directors, which obviously there's a much smaller pool. yeah. And so, you know, it's more concentrated. But Lanate, um, I watched, and it was amazing. I mean, it was just fantastic. And then... 
as I was going through the BFI 264, <laughs> I got to see Antonioni's Red Desert, mm-hmm. and that was amazing, and it blew me away, and we talked about yeah. that. And you, and so I even told you you had to watch yeah. it, and uh, I said, it, I thought- It did not blow me away, though. Oh, well, you know, look, th- these things, you know- Here's my hot take on Antonio, uh, Antonioni. Okay. I, I'm not a big fan. Okay. <laughs> That's my hot take. I mean, I don't know if I'm, I mean, I don't know if I'm a big fan. I mean, like Love and Jura, I, for some strange reason, like that movie, but it's really hard to like for a lot of people. Not yeah. Much and Red Desert, I felt like was just an incredibly well-made movie with a lackluster script. I mean, again, I don't always have to be a script guy. And I feel like there's plenty of movies right. with great scripts. Yeah. And sometimes, they, you know, if you can get both, that's great. But I don't feel like a movie isn't great without both. Um, and it's doing different things. I feel like I mean, to get on my top 100 list, it needs to, you know, kind of be firing on all cylinders. But that's you, my friend. Yeah. You're like a guy who wants the script part, too. And as I've learned going through this, and and you have not been taking the challenge <laughs> at all. Now, I would say you're not taking it seriously. You're just not taking it. And I have seen so many of these movies, and the thing is, script, and I agree with you there, like, I can't believe it. Like, I, you know, I went to film school yeah. and the idea of script and construction, but I think it's the Hollywood way that we were mm-hmm. kind of taught, even if an independent way, you would kind of like, you. this is the formula, mm-hmm. that the by and large, these 264 films deviate. From the formula. From the formula, and script is secondary, yeah. or the way that they use a script. And Antonioni script has always been secondary, though I would say the script for Lanate is one of the better ones. The thing with Red Desert, though, is that it's a script movie. It's dialogue heavy. It's about story and character. But it's also very European, and maybe don't don't have the nuances to understand Europe in the early 60s. No, no, no. But, uh, so my, my issue on the script is I, I, I don't... Uh, I can't even tell you. I just watched it a few weeks ago. I don't know what the story of Red Desert was. Oh, I kind of Oh, do. really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, this woman, she had been in some kind of car accident, and she's not mentally kind of up to snuff since yeah. then. And she is disillusioned with her husband and her husband in the industry, and she has all these fears that – the environment they're in is toxic and is killing them. And then she meets this uh, kind of international person yeah. that's come to work with the husband. And okay, so kind of but what you're, des- what you're describing is a fairly traditional story. Yeah, but that's in there. <laughs> I got it. Okay, my point is that it just the story didn't do it for me. Like I, I thought it was just incredibly well made expertly just masterful direction and the story just didn't do it for me yeah i'm not look, i'm not saying that red desert is in my top 100 <laughs> i haven't decided that yet i'm just okay. saying that i really really liked it so because i really liked it i was looking forward to the final film of antonioni's that made it onto the 264 which was Leclerc, which is part of the thematic trilogy of la ventura la notte and La Classe. Okay. They're sort of spiritual cousins thematically, really about, I guess, the Italian bourgeois, the social elite, and their hang-ups right. and why they suck, I guess, <laughs> and that they don't really give a shit about anything in the world except for monetary things. Um, and I was going along, you know, all right, we're to watch this, see what it's all about. And then, I don't know, maybe it's a half an hour in. It's, it's about a half an hour in, and it, the movie... <laughs> 
it's sort of a picaresque, right? Where it's this woman kind of wandering through the world and not a really tight story structure, but she's just coming out of a relationship and maybe interested in another one. And so there's a love story going on, uh, but it's very episodic the way it plays out as opposed to being really tightly plotted. Maybe more towards the end, it starts to get more plot, but at the beginning, it's kind of all over the place. She's wandering around. She talks to her mother. She They go to the stock market. Yeah, her mom's obsessed with the stock market, which, by the way, so there was a commentary he was making at the time. There was a kind of a big stock market boom in yeah. Italy. And so, um, you know, I, Antonioni, I think, is very focused on showing how the elite was getting caught up. Right. And, yeah. and the riches, right? And they were like all about making money. But anytime the stocks take a dip, they are freaking they're out. They're freaking out. And yeah, so there is a stock crash. Uh, I didn't like the stock market scenes. And I did. But I mean, you know, it's like. Well, I just thought they went on too long. And I couldn't, for the most part, I couldn't really tell what the action was or what the, what the drama was. I couldn't, I couldn't follow it very well. Here's the thing. This is why I kind of like it. Right, it always mesmerized when these guys were in the pits trading. Yeah. It, I don't understand how anybody could get anything accomplished. I could never understand yeah. it. But my dad was involved in um, the financial markets for years. Yeah. He was a compliance officer. Briefly, he actually went to stockbroker school, got his license. He just didn't like it. I mean, you really have to yeah, have you really have to kind of be wealthy in order to be a stockbroker to start. Right. Unless you're just really good at cold calling and can make it. And he just, it wasn't for him. But he loved the excitement. And when the movie Trading Places came yeah. out, which involves like the commodity part yeah. of the stock market and the pits, my dad loved that movie. And he loved those scenes. And he would, like, I would ask him and he would try to explain it to me. He understood it absolutely okay. every aspect of those pits and, and it all made sense to him and he would get excited about what was happening in the movie in a way that i never could because i couldn't understand interesting it he could. okay that's cool yeah so I, I i maybe if i had more so i understand enough about what was happening in the pits and eclipse it is very chaotic but like you have Alain Delon and he's like a broker and he's kind of working for a firm and you have like, everything was done by the phones. Right, you right. can see there was like people waiting by the phones. You have runners and you've got people that want to either buy or sell orders. And so you have- Well, like, I get the basic concept. It's just in the movie from, from <laughs> one order to the next, I didn't really care. Oh, but see, I guess I understood enough, so I was getting caught up okay. in it, and I thought it was very interesting. But so, so you really like this movie, is what we? <laughs> okay, no, stop, no. So, anyways, half hour into this movie, right? I'm watching. She's with a friend, and they're gonna go visit some other friend of hers who, like, is back from Kenya, where yeah. she'd been staying. Well, and maybe no, had, where, like, where her family's from. Yeah, so she's from Kenya, and she's like, but she's not. She's not black. Kenyan. She's one of the white like plantation owners. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think she actually says there's like, I forget how many, what the numbers are, but basically, yeah, there's some white colonialist in Kenya and that's her family. Yeah. So they go up to the apartment and this woman, they're talking and you see right on the background, all these beautiful <laughs> images of uh, Kenya, right? All these very beautiful <laughs> pictures. And the conversation that they're having, uh, you know, 
is pretty racist. And already I was like, oh, this, I guess it's a product of its time. And I know that they're these elitists and don't even realize how they talk. And maybe right. that's somewhat of the point. I get it. Uh, but I don't think that Antonioni was like, say, trying that hard to make a point here. I, I really feel like he himself was a guy with blinders. And I feel like there's apologists out there. If he was trying to make a point, he did not make it. Okay, then you're on the same page with me. And I feel like there are apologists out there who love this movie that will try to explain this entire sequence away because then this is just insane, right? They're all having a good time. And you hear this Kenyan person, she's so racist, but the, the women and the person you're following, Monica Vitti, doesn't seem to be phased by what she's saying. Right. But then it cuts. There's no like lead up to this. It just cuts the sequence where they put on this like funky, jazzy music, like, and. Suddenly, Monica V is in full, like, blackface. No, no, no. Black body. Black body. She somehow painted herself completely black. Her entire body. And wearing some kind of Kenyan wardrobe. And she starts having a blast dancing around to this, like, sort of jazzy Kenyan musical number. Carrying a spear. With a spear. <laughs> as just she's a native. And my jaw, like, went so far to the floor. <laughs> Because I couldn't believe this was happening. I had no kind of uh, <laughs> warning that this was going to happen. And I'm like, how could this have been okay in any movie at any time? Never mind. You warned me, but with, but you didn't tell me what the warning was about, right? Well, no, my warning was more like I saw this movie and based on a sequence alone, not the fact that I didn't think the movie was great right. enough to be in the top 60, 264, but I feel like, especially with the... Uh, you know, Garish Shambu and his whole mission to kind of blow up the establishment. Like, you know, maybe some of these people putting on these films, if they're going to do that and it's old and they haven't seen it in a while, maybe they should at least <laughs> rewatch re the movie <laughs> and see if like it all flies. Cause I bet you there's a lot of people, like if I saw this movie 20, 30 years ago when I was like, you know, 1920 and we're talking about, you know, 1990 and the way things were then, if I loved the movie for some reason and I completely like didn't think about that scene in the same yeah. way, I guarantee you 30 years later, I would have blocked that scene out of my memory probably. So that was the point I was making earlier about how people see these movies and hold on to them and maybe haven't rewatched them, but they end up on their list because, you know, they loved them at some point. Uh, I can see uh, the possibility of seeing Lickless with an with the right audience and loving it. With the one that loves watching blackface? Okay, so, like, are they all so looping you, it up you, during that scene? You had warned me. You didn't tell me what it was. Oh, so I was saying that there was something that just was, I just found so disgraceful yeah. and awful, but I wasn't going to tell you, but I wanted you to be prepared. And I was like, one, I was kind of like teasing you because I'm like, I wonder if he's going to be like, what the hell could it be? Like, you had no idea what it could be. I, so I was thinking, <laughs> here's, here's what I had in mind, was some kind of violence against women. Uh -huh. So I was expecting maybe a rape scene that was... Well, actually, though, doesn't Alain Delon slap her? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you got some violence against women. Yeah. So I was expecting, but she was being irrational. So I was expecting something like that, and then this scene begins, and it begins with all these photographs of Kenya. The music starts, and there's this little montage of things on the wall. Then it cuts, and I was like, "That's not so bad. It's a little bit racist, right?" Then it cuts to Monica Vitti with her hairdo and her blackface, black body outfit, whole thing, right? And I'm like. <laughs> 
Okay, well, maybe it's a commentary. I I think James is overreacting. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna fight him on this. <laughs> okay, okay. And then uh, the woman uh, the woman from Kenya says, "That's enough. It's time to stop playing Negroes." Yes. And I I'm like, okay. And then so then she, they're back in their Monica Vitti's back in her normal clothes and I was like okay by the way so, like, wait just for the audience you just when you the word you just said that's what she said it wasn't you classifying black no 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 that that's a quote from the movie is she says okay that's enough it's time to stop playing negroes I wrote down the quote because it was so amazing to me yeah at, at this point I was just like I was like my I was just looking around for other people to be like can you what did, did I just <laughs> so, what what did so I just I, see I was thinking it was pretty bad, but I was still prepared to make an argument that uh, I was still prepared to try to defend this. Right. But then the next part of the scene, they're sitting around talking about Kenya. And (laughs) I know the imagery in the first part of the scene was offensive and racist, but the second part of the scene where there's, where they're just sitting around casually talking about Kenya, I'm not going to repeat those lines because (laughs) no, because it's some of the most racist stuff I've ever heard. I I know. I know. I was so, I was so mixed up. I actually thought that happened first and then the dance, but yeah, it was the dance and then that. And so yeah, it was the dance and then that, and it is so, the conversation is so far beyond what you would do if you were making a commentary uh, because there's no point of view in the film uh, from the film makers or from characters in the film. There's no point of view that at any point says this is problematic. Uh, so I really don't, I just don't think I, I would have accepted this scene if I felt like it was making a comment and, but it's not, not only that, it has nothing. I feel like Antonioni was being exploitative. Yes. But like in a way that like, I mean, he put the kind of makeup that you put on her for this scene, you can't just wash off and suddenly she's sitting there talking to them afterwards. Like, you know what I mean? It was so. No, in the scene afterwards, she's wiping it all off. Yeah, I know. But it was so much like you couldn't just do that. Like he like went to great lengths. Yes. To have her look this way. And the worst part is it it wasn't her character looked like she was having a blast doing it. Yes. It really bothered me so profoundly. I, I Like I said, it doesn't matter what else happens after the movie. I couldn't root for Monica Vitti's character because that was part of her character that somebody exactly. that she was so b- racistly blind now, here's, to the fact. Here's the weird that, thing is, so she has her hair done up in that scene when she's in that outfit, right? And then immediately after, her hair is back to what it was before. So I, you could cut that sequence out and there would be no change to the movie. Right. It could still be badly written, but, it, but the whole combination of everything makes it racist, which is, again, he puts this stuff in there. If you just took that sequence out, nobody would notice, right? It's not, there's no story or plot or character reasons it needs to be there. The movie is long enough that it doesn't need the scene. It would, right. No one would ever know. But Antonioni chose to put it in there. And you're arguing for blind spot. I'm arguing that he just sucks. I just think it's a big dent and that no one's talking about it to this degree. And the fact that it would show up on the best of list, this is why there are certain films 
Uh, this I guess could show up in a different show of like movies that shouldn't be on the list for like these types of reasons. This is top of the list for me so far of what I've seen that shouldn't be. Well, okay. So here's the other thing. If we took that out, assuming we took, we went through, we made a fan edit, right? Where we take out. Yeah, which, by the way, I do, I do look at this is the film. It should exist intact so people can watch it and discuss this. Uh, I wouldn't edit it out. But yeah, if you took that out, the movie still isn't that good. I, I was doing a hypothet- hypothetical, which is that <laughs> even without that, it's kind of a lame movie. Alondo, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Oh. Alain Delon. Alain Delon. Okay. Uh, he's fantastic. I love this guy. He's just beautiful to look at. He, when he's not slapping Monica <laughs> Vigny around. <laughs> he's he's charming. He's full of life and energy. He's great. Monica Vitti is just absolutely beautiful and charismatic and entrancing. Uh, it, it, two just incredible leads and just really nothing of a movie around them and except the ending of the movie is brilliant yes the the last 10 minutes of the movie is absolutely brilliant uh it's the kind of thing that doesn't fit the formula that breaks out of the classical hollywood narrative it breaks out of all those sort of preconceptions about a love story and so the last 10 minutes is amazing Everything up until then, I just didn't care that much. I, I just think it's a, a pretty weak movie, and it shouldn't be on the list. Uh, it, it started to make me angry, actually. Steve, I'm in full agreement with you. <laughs> okay, good. Because Well, okay. So, look, I mean, you know, I'd love to hear it. If anybody out there is like a big fan of Le Class, and maybe they're like, geez, I never really thought about that scene anyway. I mean, certainly get in touch with us, stuffweseen.com. Um, drop us a comment. Uh, you know, we want to hear some feedback. Uh, but... My thought is that movie's got to go. It should not be yeah. on the list. Sorry. Next in t- 10 years from now, it shouldn't. But here's the one. If you want, if you're desperate to be like, well, but Antonioni. Okay. First of all, La Notte is amazing. Until you watch that, you'll be like, okay, now here's a yeah. winner. But for me, for me, the easy replacement, and I cannot believe it is not in the 264, is what I feel is Antonioni's best film. Very influential to me. Um, it would definitely be in my top 100 is Blow Up. Absolutely. That was the first Antonioni movie I saw. I was talking earlier about, you know, when I was in high school and I was, people were saying, you got to watch Antonioni. Well, I watched Blow Up and I watched uh, Zabriskie Point and uh, I, I enjoyed one and not so much the other. You know, the, uh, the old saying, what's the point of Zabriskie Point? <laughs> We don't know. Yeah. No one will I, know. No one I, know. I, I, I do not want to watch that movie again. <laughs> it has, again, like everything in Antonioni always has interesting uh, photography and, and, yes. and compositions, but that's it. Um, but that's it. And so I am, I'm going to go on record now and just say uh, I am anti-Antonioni. I think this guy okay. is the most overrated director in cinema oh, history. Well, but you have not seen Lenate, so I think no. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm. I'm now. I'm going. I'm going all in on this because. But have you seen The Passenger? Yes. Have you seen The Passenger? Are you lying? Yes. No, I saw it in. Well, I saw it years ago, and I liked it. Passenger's great, though. No, I look. <laughs> you can't You're right. Say, look, I'm just so angry about Leclerc. I tried to tell you. That's why I wanted you to watch it. I needed some backup because. Yeah, I'm so angry about this movie that it's bleeding over into how I feel about his other movies. 
Okay. Well, so th- that's interesting <laughs> in itself. But here's the thing about Blow Up, right? So Blow Up is so influential that yes. it influenced filmmakers to make two other films that are on the 264. First is Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, yes. which is absolutely brilliant and, and in its own right is definitely in my top 100. Oh, absolutely. Okay? Yeah. But then an almost very direct, not quite a remake, but it's I'd say even a remake. Closer- yeah. A closer cousin to Blow Up is Blow Out, De Palma's movie. Yes, yeah. maybe more stylish in its own way, but the fact that Blow Out, which I have some flaws with, uh, that that is in the 264, but not right. the original Blow Up, makes no sense to me. <laughs> well, and especially since it's so much better than Le Cless. I do have a theory, though, why it might not. Yeah. And again, I'm not picking on any one, you know, demographic here, but I would think that his character is a little bit of a male chauvinist character. There's That's some, true. There's a scene with the underage girls. Yeah. It's a little bit dicey. And I think that in today's politics, that maybe that gets it okay. a negative thing. But then that doesn't make any sense because on the other hand, how can you have people that are... <laughs> yeah. So this movie, I I really did not like this movie. And aside from the fact that the two actors, I just, I could have watched another few hours of them just like hanging out and talking. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, there's just no, but uh, uh, Antonioni, like on a, on a technical level, like what he does with his camera is just fantastic. I, I was entranced through the whole movie. Yeah, see, you're begrudgingly hating him because you know he's so damn good, but that's where I feel like it's shame on you, Antonioni, yes. because the that scene and again, those apologists, I've read a f- couple of apologist reviews where they want to chalk it up to Antonioni making a commentary, and I feel like that's a bunch of bullshit, yeah. and that he took it way too far, and that nobody was commenting on it back then, and that's what's even worse about it is the fact that it was just going on as like, oh, you know, a bunch of white people talking about black people. If nobody saw it as a commentary when it came out, it was not a commentary. That's what I'm saying. If people, right. if people yes. didn't get it as commentary then, then it, if it was commentary, it failed as commentary, and it's just racism. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about, because, I mean, maybe, look, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying we have a big big reach here, but, like. Come on the show people, and argue with us about this, because. But no, but I'm thinking that hopefully people hear this, and maybe Leclerc gets reevaluated so that it doesn't show up on the 264 the next time. We're trying to do a service here, people. I'm going to maybe start a, some kind of a viral campaign to get this movie off the list uh i'm glad i watched it i i have to say you know it's uh i I, i'd rather despite how how i feel about this movie i would rather watch it than the most recent (laughs) ant-man yeah that's available on disney plus still haven't watched it if you gave me a choice i would watch lookless a second time before i watch ant-man Okay, but here's a good thing about the BFI 264. Yeah. You want some counter-programming, right? You could do a double feature with Leclerc, but then follow it up with some a movie that actually takes the black perspective and comments on colonialism right. and the white attitude. And that's a film I just watched was the other Med Hondo film oh, that's on the list, yes. Soleil O. Yeah. Now, Soleil O was 1970, and... It was probably made, I think it took a couple of years to make it all. And that was so the late sixties and it's, it's mostly set in France. um, And it follows a group of Mauritanians who 
have been lured, right? He he actually what I realize with West Indies is there's a dialogue that Med Hondo is having through movies. Oh. About this whole colonialism and kind of reaching out into Africa and plucking its citizens, bringing them out into the big cities in France and exploiting them. And that's an aspect that happens in the in the musical West Indies, but the whole film Sole O is focused on this group of Mauritanians going over to Paris, and then and especially this one who's very educated, um, where he's from, and showing how he can't get a job and how right. they, like they can't get rent, and then how like people devise like a whole slum system to like put all of these. Um, immigrants into one building and then the, the crime it's a really that sounds fantastic really fascinating. Yeah. oh it's it's really it's not as good as west indies right? right that movie is just a masterpiece but i really appreciated because the way that he makes films it's hard to describe unless you see one of them um he's a very interesting filmmaker very non-traditional and he doesn't follow that that linear approach right. to to making a telling a story but i think that that's one that since it's available on criterion you could check that out but i just i kept on thinking of lacliss when i yeah. watched it um just because i'm like those same awful attitudes of the bourgeois and lacliss are the white people that they're commenting on in soleo if this scene had been in a Godard movie i would buy the, buy it as commentary Yes. Right. And I kept thinking about that during this movie, too. It's like Godard would have done this because he is doing a lot of those comments on the bourgeois. And, and you know, like, oh, man, what is that in Weekend where uh, there's the car crash and she's like, oh, the handbag. Oh, my Hermes my handbag. Her- my Hermes, hand- Hermes her- handbag. Yeah. Like that is a great commentary. And I this was not. Yeah, when you watch that movie, you know specifically that he is skewering the bourgeois. There's none of that in this movie. I didn't feel like there was any skewering going on. Yeah, well, there's another thing that happens later in the movie where Monica Vitti mentions to somebody and mentions her Kenya friend again. And she mentions her as, oh, she's this great person. And when I hear that, it almost connects me back to the fact that everything that happened in that woman's apartment was okay with the character and i guess that you're supposed to be you're following this character you're supposed to like her i think well (laughs) aside from that she's fairly likable yeah well that's another thing that monica vitti such an interesting actress which i've only seen you know pretty much in antonioni movies and then also in monica blaze but she modesty blaze modesty blaze sorry uh she has so many interesting facets and expressions yes. because she's almost like the actress in the mother and the whore where she's like yes. never smiles, but then she breaks out into smiles <laughs> and you know, you, you see these other facets of her character. Um, and she does a lot with eyes. She does a lot without saying things. It's a great performance, but yeah, I feel like this movie was, it's a disaster. <laughs> it was an eclipse. It, it uh, is a disaster. And the title. That you looked at without the special glasses. The title makes no sense. It does. The whole ending, it's talking about like kind of a nuclear apocalypse. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> then there's, of course, there's the mushroom cloud water tower. And, yeah. Uh, which is which is fantastic. That I loved that part. There, There's just this scene with these, uh, her and her 
boyfriend, fiance, husband, I don't know who he is, but they're, they've, it, it finds them in the morning after an all night fight. <laughs> and they're just in for 10 minutes. They're in this room talking, sort of moving around a little bit. And then she opens up the blinds and there's this crazy water tower out the window that looks like some kind of sci-fi thing. Look, if the movie without that one scene we're talking about, that 10-minute sequence, yeah. if that the rest of the movie was a masterpiece, I might be able to say, you know, I can't put it on the top 264 because of this chunk, but it's still a great movie. Yeah. But, but it's even not. without that sequence, it's not that great a movie. <laughs> yeah. It's just not his best film. It's certainly better than Zabriskie Point. Most things are. You should see La Notte yep. because that movie, it, it just... First of all, I really like the screenplay, and Marcello Mastriani's in it, yeah. and he's great. And then Monica Vitti's not like the main star of it, but she kind of comes in in the last half of it. Okay. And there's just, like, all I can tell you is there's the, the main chunk of the last part of the film takes place at a whole big dinner party, and the, the way he shoots... All of the sequences in those last like 45 minutes are some of the most masterful filmmaking. I've okay. Seen. That's how I feel about him is he's just an absolute master. And I don't know, story didn't work in this movie. So, so anyways, there's a couple, we, we, we've looked at a couple of movies that for whatever reasons we feel like shouldn't be on the list and we could find two replacements for it. It doesn't mean, you know, like there's a lot of other movies that might even be better than the two that we mentioned that should be replaced in there. But like, again, we're just looking at a very specific part of the BFI list um, on today's program. <laughs> All right. So uh, come check us out on, uh, on the website, stuff we've seen.com. <laughs> Go check us out. You take it. Yeah. Look well, here. You know what we are? We're working on some stuff. Um, you're you're working on revamping the site. We're maybe putting on a different platform. It'll still be stuffweseen.com, right? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So when that happens, we'll let you know. But for now, it's still stuffweseen.com, and you know it's available. I'm not going to give you any information on it yet, but we're kind of work rolling it out a little bit, but we are kind of on Substack as well that you yep. can kind of catch us. You could subscribe to us on Substack. It's free. If that's your favorite platform, then you can find us there. Yeah. And, and at some point, once we've kind of get everything worked out, maybe for those who are subscribing on Substack, maybe we'll we'll put out some additional articles and things like yeah. that for you. Um, but, you know, look, at, we're, we're kind of, I don't want to say we're lazy, <laughs> but we're, we're busy with other things too. So We got movies at, to like, watch. I know. And hopefully by the next episode, we will have uh, watched some stuff. I, I don't know what yeah. new stuff's coming out that we'll watch in the next couple of weeks, but we'll, we'll do something. Sounds good. All right. And in the meantime, if you have any suggestions of something you want to hear, doesn't mean we're going to get to that movie right away, but we will put it under advisement. I know that yes. uh, we always have the one person who's always given us some good suggestions and uh, we're going to, you know, take them under advisement. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, uh, that's it for the show. <laughs> else? Yep. I'll be back to in the future to talk more about how much I hate Antonioni. Okay, which is total crock. I just can't believe that you hate him. That's, you know, but he's got like seven key movies. Out of those seven, two of them aren't that great. <laughs> this movie just made me. Master. It just made me angry. I, I just I'm taking out my anger on him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. Bye bye. Bye everybody. <laughs>